You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio. You're listening to Fisher Family Ghosts. A six feet under companion podcast. I'm Sam Dingman. I'm Adrian Bain. Wait, I think one time we should like mash up our names. I'm Samian Baindig. What? <laughs> Baindig. That's really funny. Now you go. I'm Sadrian Baman. Baman? Yeah. Now, you know Adrian Bain, there was something you wanted to read. There was something that made me so happy today, which was. <gasps> Reading a shining five star review. What of what? Of our podcast. Oh, our podcast oh. is available to be reviewed in the Apple Podcast directory. It is. And people say such nice things. And we love when people say such nice things. And well, tell me. And it's Adrian. so easy. It's so easy, Sam, to how long, write a review or rate it. How long would you say it takes? It's got to be at least one minute. I mean, is at it most even five. less than no, one minute? No, 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 because these are thoughtful, Sam. Like people really <laughs> put the time in to be eloquent, mm. to be mindful, to be thoughtful, to be, and to encourage other people. My goodness. Well, does it sound like we're trying to sell jewelry on a home shopping network? A little bit. Anyways, Schrodinger's cat. I'm never going to say that word right. <laughs> it's the thought that counts. Schrodinger's? Dingers. Uh, dingers. I know because Schrod- I have ding in my name. Schroding. Schroding. Nope, nope. It's getting worse. Nope. It's actually getting yep. worse. <laughs> Quit while you're ahead. <laughs> okay. Very engaging and enjoyable podcast. Schrodinger SC gave us a five stars. Seeing as Six Feet Under is my favorite show of all time, I've sought out lots of sources of analysis of the show, both written and otherwise, to enhance my experience by understanding even more of the intricacies I've personally picked up from multiple viewings of this incredibly nuanced show. (gasps) The podcast ranks as a new favorite form for spoken discussion of the show on an episode-by-episode basis. The hosts have a great rapport to start with and are able to intellectually discuss and dissect this very dense program with the real reverence for it. It's a both fun and informative listen, and they both pick up on ideas and themes that have eluded me despite my multiple runs through the show. Kudos, guys. You have a legit fan here. And when they signed their name, they were able to put the umlaut, which means such good attention to detail. That's right. So if you would like us, to read your beautiful, delightful, well-crafted, and thought-out comment, please just leave us a review. It genuinely, I, my love language is words of affirmation, so I genuinely like glow the rest of the day when I read all those things. Well, it's for someone whose love language is words of affirmation, uh, an Apple Podcast review is like a double hit because not only do you get the words, but you also get the stars. I know. I wow. know. Wow. Just tell me I'm pretty and funny. That's all That's all I need to get me through the day. It's been working for me and, for the last no, year or so. And smart. So 
Thank you guys so much who have written to us. We love it. It is much appreciated. Thank you, Schrodinger, for your insightful emails and your insightful Thank you. review. We'll give you a shout out. I'm super excited to get into this episode. So This one was very heavy. This is season two, episode 12, written by Jill Soloway. How many writers are on this show? I do not know. I'm just curious if there's any similarities between the other ones that she's written, but we will get to that. We will. Um, I think it's interesting that this one was written by Jill Soloway because it was about the complicated nature of intimacy between members of a family and how sometimes it's something that's totally baked in and sometimes it's something you have to seek elsewhere. And that is obviously something that Jill Soloway explored much in much greater depth in Transparent several years later. Mm, interesting. Also, we have not, I have not watched all of Transparent. Me either. I would like to watch the, the last season. The, the, I think the last season is like a musical. <laughs> yeah. But I today, I've talked about before how I've been listening to this Sopranos podcast. Mm-hmm. And today I listened to an episode. Wait, you listen to other recap podcasts? Yeah, to see what we can do better. Hey, yo. Huh. Just kidding. It's not a contest. In... This episode of Talking Sopranos that I was listening to today, they had Matthew Weiner on. Matthew Weiner was the creator of Mad Men. Does he complain a lot? Sorry, that was really bad. He actually sort of does Hmm. in this episode. Um, So, good point. You're very pretty funny and smart. There we go. There we go. Um, He was, before he created Mad Men, he was a writer and a producer on The Sopranos. And... He was talking about how the HBO, I guess, somewhat famously had the opportunity to make Mad Men and they passed it up. (gasps) And so then he obviously went on to do it at AMC, became one of the greatest TV shows of all time. But he was talking in this episode about how that was true of several other folks who worked on HBO shows around the time that Six Feet Under and The Sopranos were on the air, is that they had ideas for other things that HBO passed on and that they then went on to make to great acclaim elsewhere. Now, he did not specify who he was talking about. Who do you think he was talking about? I think he was talking about Jill Soloway. And it made me wonder if HBO had the opportunity to make Transparent and didn't. Hmm. Matthew, if you're listening... Can you confirm? <laughs> Hot takes. Just a question out there in the in the ether. I want to get into like the incestuous web of HBO writers. Well, I I'm also, really curious about that now. Another interesting thing that he pointed out was HBO, from what I have heard on several podcasts, is famous for once they decide to make your show, they don't interfere very much creatively Mm -hmm. they tend to it's it's like obviously a very high bar to clear to get your show on hbo but they consider that once they've decided to spend the money on making your show they kind of trust you to do it and they don't give a lot of notes Hmm. 
about how they think it should be. Mm-hmm. And he was saying that one of the blessings of getting to do Mad Men at AMC was that AMC was so new to making prestige drama that they didn't give him any notes at all. It was a level Even above or, or level beyond HBO in terms of hand, laissez-faire note-giving hmm. and that he didn't feel like Mad Men could have become the show it was even at HBO, because even the editorial oversight he would have gotten there might have interfered with what he wanted to do. Hmm. That's really interesting. So it made me wonder, because I guess the exception to what he was talking about in terms of people who created things at HBO, having HBO pass on their next idea would be Six Feet Under creator Alan Ball, Hmm. who after Six Feet Under did True Blood with HBO. Shut up. Really? Yeah. He did True Blood? Yeah. Alan Ball is... Very macabre. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But he is... He has done a lot of very incredible things. What? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on. I actually kind of need to, like, stomach this. (laughs) Because my idea of True Blood is, like, it's kind of not... It's not campy, but it's, like... It's not cheesy. But what did you say... So much at the beginning of watching Six Feet Under. A little campy, a little cheesy. Yeah, okay, that's true. He loves genre, I think. Uh, Wow, I really need to stomach that one. But also, like, one thing that True Blood does so well is, like, really good sexual tension. Maybe it was because I was, like, watching it at a point in my life where I was, like, younger, hornier, and not getting laid. So I was like, oh, my God. But... You mean Actually, like the, the Sookie and Bill, like will yes. they, will they? Yeah, that gets ratcheted Sookie. up so expertly. Ugh, okay, wait. Can't we watch True Blood after this? <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm not kidding. Um, interesting. I actually do really want to watch True Blood after this. Just probably one episode just to, like, give it a taste, if you will. Just to give it a taste? What is that a euphemism for? Well, because they they drink blood. They, like, drink that synthetic blood. That's true. That's true. Blood. That's true blood that you're talking about in that phrase you just said. Okay, wrap it up, Dingman. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, uh, I thought that was an interesting observation that Matthew Weiner made. And it made me wonder if Transparent was almost an HBO joint. And... I wonder if the same idea would have been true there because Transparent, like Mad Men, for different reasons, was very strange and different than anything that had come before it. Totally. And I wonder if HBO, even though they famously did not give many notes, I wonder if they would have mucked it up. Because I think Transparent was like, it wasn't the first prestige thing Amazon did, but it was one of the first. Oh, yeah. And I wouldn't be surprised if they were just grateful to Jill Soloway for bringing the show there and let it be whatever it needed to be. Hmm. Okay, so we'll do True Blood and then we'll do Transparent. Great. Tonight? Yeah. Fantastic. Like all of it. I am already all mixed up emotionally from 
season two, episode 12 of Six Feet Under. So let's just make the hole deeper. Let's dig into it. Let's, I'll get some, I'll walk across the street. I'll get like three cartons of Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Great. Let's just make a fucking night of it. It's Tuesday. Fuck this. How much deeper? So deep. Six feet. That's good. Let's go. Okay. See you in a second, everyone. I feel like I shouted at the television a lot in this one. Shouted at the television and grasped at my leg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very tightly at yeah. a number of dramatic moments. Man, yeah, this one was this one was drama packed, but it didn't feel overwhelming. Like sometimes some shows are like, oh my god, you're just pulling everything out like every turn. But we had some really nice moments of levity. There were some really nice moments of levity in this one. And so let's start with the first one, which is a Kind of like a fun salon party scene. Yes, a quinceañera, I a, believe. Well, I don't, I think they were getting ready for the quince. Right, 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 right. But they weren't like. That wasn't the party. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, and everyone's just like bop, bop, bopping around. We're like, we're freshening up. We look amazing. We're dancing to Shakira. Like. They're having a pre, they're basically pre gaming as 16 year olds and like a family. So it's like weirdly fun and everyone's together and everyone's like having a really great time. And then in the midst of that, this woman just slowly, quietly like passes away, which I will say, because we learn more about her, she probably died the way that. Like, she couldn't have gone out in a better way because she clearly wanted to be involved. She wanted to, like, be with everyone. And it didn't seem like she was the center of attention, but she did, like, just being part of the mix. That's what that's what Rico says about her. Yeah. She was happy to be there. Also, because we know what happens with Rico and Vanessa, we should definitely be nicer to our neighbors, <laughs> a.k.a., like, even reach out to some of them. Oh, Oh, you mean because one of them might leave us $150,000? Yeah. You never know. You never know. That's why it's important to be nice to everyone, though. Truly. Just to clarify, not wishing death on any of our neighbors. Well, not all of them. Um, No, not wishing death on anyone. kidding. Oh, my God. Take a joke. Can you not read my face? I was busy listening to the words you were saying because you're so smart. Okay, whatever. I don't wish death on any of our neighbors. (laughs) So that's for our uh, Fisher family ghost lawyer. <laughs> yes, exactly. Bert Levine. Just got to get that, yeah. get that in clear. Did you hear that, Bert? Hear that part? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so yeah. So, so I guess what's the theme here is like something about being involved, something about mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. being in community, integrated, integrated, but also like, 
feeling fresh, like sprucing things up, which mm-hmm. people definitely looks are kind of a big thing in this one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we have the son who is like, I want my mom to be in a mahogany right. casket. And Rico is like, no, I. this is what she wanted. Mm-hmm. And then there's also both Keith and David like sprucing up the house. Yep. Trying to make it not seem so flamboyant. So I don't know, looks are kind of a theme in this one. Yes, but I would add that it's it was also about being seen, whether or not you're being seen for who you really are. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like we see that. Yeah. Well, or just, just being seen at all. True. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I feel like with Leticia, Perfecta Perez, mm-hmm. how did I do on that? That's great. With, Good job, white boy. We, thank you, white girl. <laughs> what? I have years of oppression. I didn't realize what, we were having an oppression what contest. What have you suffered through? This conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I think it was interesting that she (laughs) was not seen that, that moment that you mentioned where her son is wanting to switch to a different casket. Mm -hmm. That's him not Not seeing seeing her her. for who she was, what Mm -hmm. she wanted. She, he clearly cares about appearances. She was just happy to be there. She didn't need to need it to be about her appearance or, or how she, or, or her presence. She was just happy to be included. Yeah. And then David and Keith, as you pointed out, are having to hide evidence of their true nature. Mm-hmm. Claire goes to art school. Yeah. And it's about being seen as a misfit. So seen that she sees that another girl also drives, I just assumed it was a girl, another student also drives a hearse. It's amazing. I loved that. But Claire had the weirder one. And then Byrne and Margaret... Yeah, their whole recommitment ceremony is about like the dissolution of that they're soul twins that they walk face to face through the world, yep. and there's no boundary between them. Can we have a ceremony like that? Like where? Oh, you want to have a ceremony? Uh, sorry, ha <laughs> ha. <laughs> busted, folks. Adrian Bain <laughs> has just been busted on the air. I'm the one editing this episode. Not if I don't give you the files. <laughs> All right, fine, you do it. No, can you please do it? <laughs> um, I lost my train of thought. I believe you were saying something about wanting to have a ceremony. I also feel like Brenda and Nate finally saw each other. That's true. Like, they finally saw they each other. They finally saw each other and identified each other for who they were. Yeah. But also... Ugh. The barbs in their fight scene are fairly oh equal, I think. In how they see each other? I mean, they're both very hard on each other, but they're yeah. both right about who the other person is. Can we... Okay, can we start there? Because it's definitely, like, the biggest scene. Yes. Two breakups in this episode, though. A lot of makes up, makeups and breakups. Can I say one other quick thing about about appearances and being seen? Appearances. We also I see you. We also and I see your need right now you, and what you need to say. You do. I see you. You do. Thank you. Is it okay if I say it now? You just tell I'm me. I'm going to see you. Okay. I'm going to. I'm always going to see you. No. 
We have cameras installed all over the apartment. It's very unsettling. That's for later. (laughs) (laughs) Another thing about appearances is that we see this, this very moving backstory of Rico coming to work at the Fisher funeral home. And what he responds to is that yeah. he makes uh, Nathaniel Sr. makes Rico's father look like Rico remembers him actually looking, even though, as we hear from Rico, his face had been all messed up. But he also gives Rico a chance to connect with his father emotionally in that moment in a way that it sounds like they didn't yeah. when the father was alive. Yeah. So there's an interesting misdirection there call. about there's the appearance he gets the appearance of a close relationship but the actual relationship was a little bit different hmm that's a good Paul one which we are perhaps led to believe he then begins to forge with Nathaniel Sr. when he comes over and says so if you ever need somebody to work here yeah I think that he definitely did see Nathaniel Sr. as a father figure yeah and which I also, is interesting because his sons don't yeah well, I also loved in that scene, Nathaniel Sr. says to Rico, it's hard to, it's hard to lose your dad. He's like, I lost my dad a few years ago. But then he also says, it sneaks up on you. Yeah. Which is what Nathaniel Sr. has been doing to every character in the show for almost two full seasons now. And what happened to him? That's true. That's true. Hmm. Ooh. Oh, that's so smart. I also... Ugh, Jill Salloway. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is that is classic transparent to me. Yeah. This idea that you get to have... It, it, takes a, it takes a very seismic change in your life to recognize the disconnection that has been festering for years and seek it somewhere else. Mm. I also was very moved by the parts in that where and there was just a lot in this about oh you think you were close to your mom you called her every other Sunday mm-hmm. or Nathaniel Senior like says keeping up appearances. Yeah. Yeah. Or Nathaniel Senior says like I had baseball tickets with my dad and I just assumed he'd be around on Sunday and then he wasn't. Oof. I hate that sentence. Anyways. So, let's go back to Nate and Brenda. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It all comes out? It all does. So, they got everything out of the air. Everything got said. It sure did. Do you think that Brenda's criticisms... I thought all of Nate's criticisms of Brenda was totally fair. That's so interesting. I thought all of Brenda's criticisms of Nate were totally fair. Really? I feel like she was just like, I'm angry and I'm just going to shout things now because she was like, you always have to be the good guy. You always have to be the hero. And it's like, is that a bad thing to like want to be? But also like, do you think he's also being the hero because Brenda like. But what did we learn from mm -hmm. the episode where he saw all of those ghost children? Like he was not. A hero, I'm sure, for the people who he had those relationships with. Totally. And who he left holding, you know, a ton of emotional baggage. 
Nate is not perfect, but I think that he does has been aspiring to be a better person. I think the parts where it gets really tricky is when he's interacting with someone from his past who knew past Nate, and they're treating him in a way of like, oh, aren't you past Nate? And he's like, no, I'm evolved. Please don't bring me back there. Because I'm thinking of Lisa, and I'm thinking of his mom specifically, because I feel like those relationships haven't really evolved. And I don't know. Part of me was like, so what, Brenda? So what? He wants to... Like, you do need help, you know? Like, you do need support. Yeah. But he also, I mean, the thing she says about you brought another life into this world. Mm -hmm. I mean, they basically have the exact same conversation that we had on the podcast last week about which is worse. I was thinking that. And, you know, they kind of arrive at the same place. Like, they're both bad. Yeah, they're both bad. (laughs) But... You know, I, I I mean, I don't think either of them necessarily wins in this conversation. I think they both reach the point where they realize, like, well, this is completely irreconcilable. Yeah. But also, I think Nate, when he talks to, I think his name's Aaron, the guy who Rabbi Ari referred him to go talk to, who's dying from, I think it's pancreatic cancer. Mm-hmm. In this episode, they have that conversation where Ari says, I'm sorry, where Aaron says, I have never been able to commit to a relationship because the second I get start getting close to somebody, this big red super ball on my neck starts pulsing and saying, leave, leave, leave. And then as soon as I leave, I feel better. That's exactly what Nate used to do. I think that conversation was very much Nate having an exchange with the road not taken version of himself because here he is, he's dying from a terminal condition, Mm. which Nate also has. Mm -hmm. He is talking about how he's abandoned every romantic relationship he's ever been in. Mm -hmm. And he's talking about how he has shut his family and his friends out of his life, which is exactly what Nate had done before the series six feet under began. Um, And so I think it brings up this exact question that you're talking about uh, around whether or not Nate is still the person he used to be or what his relationship with that person Hmm. is. And it's, uh, and and Brenda, it seems, and Brenda's caught in the exact same tension. I was envisioning Brenda when, Aaron was saying that, like, leave, Hmm. leave, leave thing. Hmm. Huh. So you thought he was listening to Aaron and thinking, oh, oh my God, he's describing Brenda? No, no, no. I was was watching it, not projecting what Nate was seeing, but projecting my own stuff. I'm also curious, do you think that I'm harder on Brenda because I'm a woman and you're harder on Nate because you're a man? That's a fascinating question. Because I was just noticing that, like, we're li- we're looking at this argument between a heterosexual man and woman who are in a relationship, and we are ostensibly a heterosexual man and woman who are in a relationship. And <laughs> I'm just curious, why do you think that we were a little bit hard? Like, why do you think, hmm. 
Well, in my case, if I had to guess, it probably has something to do with the fact that I, I had this affinity for Nate back when I watched the show for the first time mm-hmm. that was very much, as I talked about in an early episode, based on appearances to mm-hmm. pick up the theme of this one in terms of dressing like him. And now I see being older than his character even is in the show. Mm-hmm. I see his personality much differently hmm. than I did before. So I think I feel a, a pull to interrogate what I was drawn to before and, and what I'm seeing now that I maybe couldn't see then. That's really interesting. But maybe we're both critiquing the same sex more intensely because it's like, be a good representation of us, you know? And we're noticing that, like, they're not being a good representation of us. Yeah, but... Projection. But I think I'm also realizing that I don't really share a lot of characteristics with Nate in a way that I maybe thought I did or wished I did in some bizarre way back in the day. You know, I mean, they're both survivors of an extreme trauma. They, I'm not saying you and I haven't been through our own things, but I don't know. I mean, well, I don't want to assume how you feel about Brenda. I think part of me is still a little like the way I responded to Brenda in the beginning is like, ugh, Brenda. And I think I still have a little bit of that. And she's won me over and then kind of betrayed me again. So I feel like that's where I'm sitting. Is like, I'm like, I'm going to be more critical on her because she's not, she's not doing the work. Like, she's not doing the work. And she's actively fucking shit up. And maybe she, I don't think that her and Nate are meant to be. Like, if I'm being perfectly honest, I don't think they are. I think they met each other at a very vulnerable moment in their lives. And sure, they probably had great sex. They probably had, like, a really great time. But they're not the twin flame. Or the, what was it, twin souls or something. Twin souls. Soul twins. Soul twins. And I don't know. I think she just, I think I'm frustrated with Brenda because I'm like, you still have so much growing up to do. And she's not working on it. Yeah, but she's also in a, she's never been in a period of her life. See, now we're doing it again. I'm defending her. Mm -hmm. Um, But she's never had the opportunity because of the responsibility that she felt towards Billy and whatever nonsense she had to process from her relationship with her parents. Mm -hmm. I don't think she's ever felt like she was allowed to work on herself. I mean, I think this, like the way that her cheating on Nate is obviously bad. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But there is something very constructive about the fact that she is acknowledging how good those experiences feel to her and then working it out on the page Mm -hmm. because she wants to understand and be in dialogue with her own experiences. Like Those are parts of a healthy end game, even if it involves betrayal in the immediate term. I don't know. I don't think writing about your feelings and your bad behavior, like 
That doesn't forgive the action. No, no, I'm not saying I think it forgives the action, but I think it's a healthy part of a process of self-discovery that can lead to an evolution. I'm not saying I think that just because she wrote it down in this book that she may or may not publish, she's absolved of responsibility for betraying Nate's trust. But I do think these are signs of somebody who is working on herself. It's sloppy and it's causing pain to somebody who she does love, I think. But I think she does love Nate. But but it's not as though... I guess I think it was really interesting that like these two different types of ostensibly eternal love book ended their breakup because Mm -hmm. like marriage vows, even if you're redoing your vows and understanding that this is a lifelong commitment, whereas the love of a mother and a baby, like that's, that's like be, it's like, so it's ideally, it's like so primal, you know, that like, it is a commitment, but it's not even, you're not even thinking of it like it's a commitment. You know, it's just like, this is what I do now, you know, and I love this thing. Right. It's a, ideally, it's a commitment you don't even have to think about. It just is. Exactly. So I think it's really interesting that their big breakup fight and like revealing the truth was bookended by these two moments of like ostensibly eternal love. Yes. Yes. I would agree. I would agree. And I guess, in to back up the idea that they do love each other, Burn at the recommitment ceremony or whatever mm-hmm. we want you want to call it says to Nate that that's what true love is is total honesty, yeah, and clear communication and forgiveness and forgiveness. Yeah. And this is the first scene between Nate and Brenda where they aren't they are they're not holding anything back. I know there's not a lot of forgiveness, but there is just total openness about how they feel. It's that all the cards are, are on the table. Yeah. And I think they do that because they do love each other. They don't, they don't invent a way out of it. You don't think that they're just like afraid to die alone. What? Oh my God. Well, no. I mean, like, what do they have? Say more about that. Well, like, I... You think they're in a relationship with each other because they're afraid to die alone? No, no, no. I'm just trying to think of, like... The relationship was really good at the end of season one. It had, like, ebbed and flowed, but Brenda was, like, coming along to, like, okay, I want to be with this person. I think Brenda is just having this moment of, like... oh, shit, my life should be so much further along than it is. Whereas I think Nate probably does want to get married and, you know, have that kind of married life with a committed person. But I don't know. I think he knows that, like, I think he knows that Brenda isn't the one. And I don't believe in the one. But I think that, I don't think they really love each other. I don't think, like, when Margaret was talking about that, like, spark. I don't think they have it. But what if, because you were saying earlier that if Brenda was with Nate, if if Brenda was not with Nate, you don't think that she would feel 
self-conscious or ashamed of the way she's doing her sexuality. No, I don't think so. Do you think if Nate was not with Brenda, he would be... More of a Casanova? Yeah, he would He would still be living his life the way he was. I don't know. I think that Nate has definitely realized, like, I think I would like to be in a long-term partnership, and he thought Brenda was someone who mirrored that in him. I'm sorry, Brenda, your mirror is really warped. And I think he's now realizing that she's not the person to do that with. Hmm. I think that he was in a place to, like, hunker down with someone. That's interesting. I see it differently. I think... What? But you're wrong. I think he has been running from commitment his whole life. And much in the same way that the death of his father forced him to just pick being a funeral director as who he's going to be. I think he decided that he should do the same thing with Brenda, just pick her because it, it felt different than anything had ever felt. And isn't that also what that Aaron guy said is that I never looked at someone. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I think Nate was seeing the like but through the you, looking glass version of himself. But I think that what at least what Aaron was saying was that at a certain point you settle. And I think that I think that Nate is settling. You think you think Aaron was saying at a certain point you settle? Yes, a hundred percent. At a certain point you look at someone and you say, I picked that one. That's settling. But I, think, because- but I think what Margaret, what we're meant to take from Margaret and Byrne in this episode is that sometimes you find your soul twin. But they, but they say that they, Margaret says that she feels this magnetic pull. And I don't know if you've ever settled before, Sam, but like you don't feel that magnetic pull. Oh, is that something you have experience with, settling? Just, you know, living it day to day. <laughs> Just staring at my choice. But. Really sitting in it. I think. So I think that that's also really interesting that both Aaron and Margaret give these very two opposite. Yeah. They both describe the same moment, but in like very, in a very different lens. Right. All right. Well, let's move off of. Let's move off of. Let's talk about another breakup. Ruth, oh my God. And Nikolai. Ruth was so, like, self-assured in this episode. She was. She was very, like, poised. Poised? She was very poised and she was very, like, I don't know, she just seemed very in her element and very, like, excited for people. And just very self-assured. And then she realized that Nikolai had, you know, no interest in having a real future with her. And she was like, fuck you, I'm leaving. And I have so much respect for her. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I loved the shot of her, like, walking in and out of the movie theaters, too. Right. I thought that was great. Right. Yeah. Yeah. She's so great. But then I do think that she was like, I love that Lisa called Ruth. Was there anything you want to say about the breakup? About Ruth and Nikolai? Mm-hmm. No. I, I think you perfectly encapsulated it. Yeah. I think Nikolai... I think, well, I guess the only thing I want to say is I think Nikolai was accustomed maybe 
in his previous relationships to not having to make too much of an effort and still, you know, cause he says he loves Ruth and it, or he has previously said he cares very much about Ruth and, yeah. you know, calls her Ruthie and, you know, Ruthie. Ruthie. But I think in this one, he realizes what Ruth is looking for is an order of magnitude more yeah. uh, engagement than he's ever put into anything. Yeah. And I want her to find a man who treats her right. Because she kind of is having a relapse of the Nathaniel Sr. vibe. Well, that's interesting. Because how much do we really know about her relationship with Nathaniel Sr.? I think that we know in the beginning it was really exciting and beautiful and sexy. I'll never get over that naked photo. And Oh, right. The Polaroid. But then I think, like, you have kids and kids just add a level of chaos that you can't even imagine. And it's, it's hard to maintain the relationship between you and your partner. So I think that they just started growing distant and then just start. I think the energy I get is that Ruth was taken for granted is that she's like, I put a lot of love and I put a lot of energy into like making a really nice house. See, I'm not hard on women. I'm so defending Ruth. I didn't say you were hard on women. No, I was weirdly chastising myself. I was like, are you a misogynist? That's what I've been thinking silently to myself this whole time. You as in me. I was like, am I a misogynist? But no, I think I just have issues with Brenda, and I don't fully know what or why. Um, Anyways, so I I think that Ruth definitely felt taken for granted. And... With Nathaniel Sr., and I don't think that there was, like, a lot of love, especially given that she started having an affair. That's true. That's true. But I think it's interesting that she's the one who started having the affair, not him, totally. that we know of. Because I, I wonder if it's... Yeah. Well, I guess she... He, yeah. I guess he wasn't... But I think that... I think that... Hiram gave her a level of attention that Nathaniel Sr. like definitely didn't. He would call her beautiful, even though she would like scoff it off. And he would really be so doting. Mm-hmm. And she's not used to that. Yeah, that's true. Never slack off. Continue. <laughs> she also says. I will cheat on you with a hairdresser. What? But in like 30 years. <sighs> okay, so Ruth. Wins major points. I also think that, like, I don't know, for some reason, I keep thinking that the baby is kind of a gift to Ruth. That she's been really looking. I personally think that Ruth is going to smother the fuck out of this baby. Not in, like, a like in a good way. You yeah. know, and like, oh, my God, I want to take care of this. I wanna, like, she's going to be a little overwhelming. But, really but I think this. that Lisa might need that. I just, can I, can I say one last thing? Because I... I loved the scene of Ruth comes over to Lisa's house. Right. Oh my God, that was the most like beautiful thing. And I, I'm really glad that this episode was written by a woman because I think that it just, I don't know. It made my uterus squeeze. That's the only way I can explain it. And not in like a, I want a baby kind of a way, but like in this very 
tender, beautiful, like feminine moment of like this woman who has just given birth and she passes off her baby to like someone who she's related to, who is also like gone through so she's gone through labor three times. There's just, I don't know. There's just something so like, uh, women of the wild about it. And I just, I don't know. I loved it. I thought it was so, and, and it's another girl. Like, I don't know. I just, it was so beautiful. And I just, it was, it was wordless. There wasn't a single line in it. And I just, I loved it. Well, I loved that last shot of Ruth because it made me think about the moment where she tells Claire that she's a feminist. This is another thing about... That's true. They have a little feminist combo. ...appearances and being seen for who you are. Because Claire has this response to her mom saying that she studied feminism, that she couldn't possibly be a feminist. And Ruth literally says feminism means being accepted for who you are. Mm -hmm. And she says, I wanted to be a wife and a mother. Which is feminist. that at the end, in that last scene... That's Ruth in her happiest place. Yeah. She has this little baby in her arms. Yeah. Oh, I loved that. I thought it was so beautiful. I think it's very interesting in the shot that they take Lisa out of the shot. It's just Ruth. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. And I just like, I loved that they were like, just, they were bonding over, they were just bonding and they were bonding over like a little girl. And I just thought it was a very beautiful, like, it was a quiet, like girl power kind of moment. Well, it is very interesting that Ruth's first exposure to Brenda is very sexualized. Yeah. And... It's so true. Oh, my God, I forgot about that. Ruth never totally gets over that, Yeah, it seems like. I mean, she makes an effort at Brenda's bridal shower. Yeah. Which is kind of a disaster already. But um, there's always tension between them because of the sexualized nature of this first interaction. And yet, Lisa calls her up... And says, you don't know about this, but your son had sex with me and now there's a baby. Mm-hmm. Also a very sexualized situation. Out of wedlock, too. Yep. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I can imagine in Ruth's world that that's not. Right. Great. But Ruth's reaction to that is very warm and like she just wants to come over and... And it is very kind. Why and, would you squish that baby? But, Are you kidding me? I'm not saying it doesn't. Squish. I'm not saying it's. Tunk, 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 tunk. All right. I'm not saying. <laughs> what? I'm not saying it's. No, I, I can see the mild hypocrisy. Well, it's. I don't know. I mean, obviously, there's a pre existing relationship between the two of them. Yeah. You know, like she knows Lisa from the past. But it is different. Like, there's something about Brenda that's threatening to her. Totally. And even though Lisa calls her up and says, your son has been hiding this massive secret from you. She just goes right to her and feels no distance from her. Yeah. I want to know what you think of Lisa's choice to tell Ruth what happened. I know. I thought that was really interesting. Because in a way... That is, uh, you know, she's revealing a piece of news that Nate has clearly been keeping from her for a reason, but it is her granddaughter. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that at a certain point, Lisa did want to have Nate be involved. Mm -hmm. And 
I don't know if you've ever been a single mom before, but like it's fucking hard and it's nice to have another pair of hands. So I can imagine that like yeah. out of necessity, she's like, I'd really love some help. Mm-hmm. But also I think that like that's a I don't know. That is really tricky because A, it's super fucked up that Nate hasn't said anything. And it's really confusing because Lisa was like, well, I don't want Nate in the life. So I don't know what her motives are. I don't know what her motives are. But maybe she was just calling. Well, she was calling for Nate. For Nate. And I guess I'm also realizing it is not in Lisa's nature to not say the truth of what's happening. Totally. Whereas in every other character has no problem. Obfuscating. Exactly. And I'm also realizing that I am already having a temptation with Lisa to do to her what I did with Keith early on and assume that she only behaves in that like her character is her character is just virtuousness and Mm -hmm. grace and moral uh, transcendence of the temptations of humanity. And obviously she is, a flawed person just like everybody else in the show and sometimes does things that maybe you shouldn't do, but she can't help it because of the way that she is. So, like, basically, she's a person, not a the symbol of the way things ought to she's be. She's not an idea of a woman, Dingman. Just like you Keith. take all of her complications. Just like Keith, which was is a great... Was not the symbol of a man. Which is a great pivot because what do we think is going to happen to Keith? Well, my first thought about Keith in this episode... When he finds out that he is not going to lose his job for the shooting, mm-hmm. is that I realized, I think, that what Keith was upset about when it came to the shooting was not that he had killed someone, but that it was a blemish on his perfect record. Mm-hmm. It was about not being a perfect cop. It wasn't about taking a life. I was very disturbed that he took someone's life though i do too but i also think he he saw it as i'm i'm keith i'm not supposed to make mistakes sure i'm not allowed to screw up sure and then i found it very fascinating that when he realizes after being so paranoid that he has to hide the fact that he's gay when the yeah person comes to yeah um and then it turns out that guy's gay and then he finds out that it he's off the hook for this shooting. He realizes, oh, I don't have to be so perfect all the time. And he instantly overcorrects completely in the other direction. Yeah. And takes all this rage that's been building up in him for episode after episode out yeah. on this guy in the house. Yeah. So are we assuming that... But I loved that scene... Where both David and Keith were like talking about, oh, is this too much? Is this too I just like, that was such a nice little. That was a great scene. That was just such a great scene. But when they were sitting together with the social worker, did Keith have his hand on David's thigh? Oh, that's interesting. I couldn't see. I couldn't see. I wasn't sure. I think it was quick. But anyways, so do we think that Keith is in trouble because now he's beat up somebody? Yeah. I mean, I think it, that guy was being incredibly aggressive with Keith, but I mean, this, 
I guess in a way is the whole conversation about policing that's happening right now. It's like, yeah. even if somebody is being provocative towards a police officer, that doesn't mean the cops just allowed to beat the crap out of them. Yeah. Um, but I think in a way what's happening with Keith is it, it sort of parallels Brenda's journey mm. in the sense that he has had to hold back yeah. these real parts of his personality for so long in the name Ooh. of appearing a certain way, appearances. And the second he gets a little taste of how good it can feel to let your guard down, he goes very hard in the other direction with catastrophic results. Yeah. Wow. What did you think about when David calls Nate and says, sometimes the good guys really do win? Oh, yeah. That feels related to this, but I can't put my finger on how. Well, I think that that's such a like, honestly, I didn't feel like it fit because good guys indicates that you live in a world of black and white of like there are good guys and there are bad guys and that's all that there is but six feet under is only walking through every shade of gray so if anything it felt a little off to me because like yeah so maybe it was a a little bit of a moment of reversion for david to a a version of himself that did see things in a little bit more of a good catholic altar boy sense i think that in david's world like you are the protagonist of your story and therefore you are the good person because you understand what you are going through no matter how you know skewed or rose-colored you might be looking at yourself like ideally we all think that we are the protagonist and we are good guys so i think that that's just kind of where it's coming from, but it didn't fit very well in dialogue. Hmm. I don't know. Hmm. Um, so, but also I like, I don't know anything more about, I don't know what a class 11 is. I don't know any more about what happened. And like, honestly, class 11. Oh, oh, the, what Kroner's filing yeah. for. And honestly, like I know that Kroner was very terrible but like David and David and Nate have also like pushed back and been assholes too, mm-hmm. you know. So part of me is like, you're not all good, you know. But they were just fighting for survival. I get that they were just fighting for survival. I get that, but like, they were still rude. Yeah, that's true. That's they were true. still rude, like at the hot tub, and like anytime Missy comes in. Um, I was that rudeness though, or was that that just them sticking to their values in the face of overwhelming they've pressure? Like, they've like sworn at her. I think that there's a difference. But she between, was trying to put their family business no, underwater. No, no. I get that, but I think that I don't know. So you're saying you you feel like David saying sometimes the good guys win. You're saying you think that was basically like a, a bad piece of writing. Kind of. Hmm. Okay. Last, I want to think on it more. Okay. Last thing, I think we should talk about Claire a little bit. Yes. I thought it was interesting, again, just in terms of the theme of 
appearances and being seen and accepted for who you are. Gary, her counselor, Mm -hmm. who is probably the one person who is consistently, with the exception of that one time he tried to say, like, we have to acknowledge the sexual tension between us. That was so weird. But other than that, he has so consistently been the one who really does seem to see and accept Claire for who she is. Yeah. And is the one who has recommended to her that she go to this Island of Misfit Toys art school. And then he has been laid off because the, (laughs) I guess the school system has decided he is, they have decided not to accept him for who he is, uh, at least professionally. And she goes and leaves a picture of herself. Yeah. What did you make of that? I know. I thought that was a little weird, especially because Billy was like, you look so good in these. Mm -hmm. So, but I think she did want to give a little piece of herself because she felt very seen by him, even though she didn't want to admit that he saw her, you know? Mm -hmm. I thought it was touching. I thought it was weird, but also she's a teenager, so. Right. Yeah. Wait, wait, what was the teenager part? Yeah, like it was you don't always a, know what the right move is. Like it was a clumsy gesture. It was a little clumsy. Like well-intentioned, but clumsy. Very well-intentioned. And it's a beautiful photo, don't get me wrong, but like as a guidance counselor, as someone who used to like tutor, and that's not, this is a guidance counselor, but there are moments where like you give a kid advice outside of sure, like how to study for the SAT. Right. Like, I think, and you do develop relationships with them. Like, it'd be fucking weird if someone was like, here, let me give you a photo of myself for you to look at when we're no longer together. Right. Or no longer, like, seeing each other regularly. Uh Uh-huh. It's a little weird. So it's clumsy. It's very nice. It's very clumsy. Yes. Okay. Okay. I also thought it was interesting. I don't know if I can fully express this, but there's a way in which... Gary is kind of the inverse of Billy. Whoa, go on. So Billy sees Claire as very beautiful. He sees her as very talented. He sees her the way she wants to be seen, but he has very bad boundaries about it. Until this episode when he expresses what he wants to do, but also that he's not going to do it. A a real moment of healthy behavior from Billy Mm -hmm. and Gary seems to have all these very visceral desires towards Claire, but he does not act on any of them in the way that Billy has previously in the show. But he also does still see her kind of in the same way that Billy does. Also, they sort of look alike now that Billy got his haircut. No, they don't. I think they do. They don't look anything alike. Uh, I think they do. A little bit? No. Just a bit? Not at all. Well, listeners, tell us if you agree. Yeah, I FFG, actually would love that. FFG at WALT.FM. I would also like to know as a last thing what you make of the fact that when Claire is showing Billy the portraits of herself that she took, she has laid them out on yeah. the t- on the table where they embalm the corpses. I thought it was interesting because 
the embalming table is a table upon which the illusion of life is infused into a still and lifeless form. And that is what Claire is doing with, uh, and that's what a good photograph is. It's a still form that seems to radiate life. Can't top that. Okay. Well, everybody, thank you so much for listening to the show as always. If you would like to email us about anything, you can do that at ffg at walt.fm. And read and review us. Yes. We will read it at the top of the show, and we would love that. Yes. Also, when you are done rating and reviewing, since you're already in the Apple Podcast Directory or the podcast directory of your choosing, you can also listen to the other shows that both Adrian and I make. Yes. Adrian, what is the title of your show again? I actually know. I just am cueing you for your line. Oh, behind the scenes content there. How the sausage is made. Oh my God. So I have another podcast. It's called Strangers Abroad, and I'm going to come out with a new episode on Thursday. Oh my goodness. Oh my God. It's been a year. 2020 was a great year for travel. So I've got so much content to share with you guys. And it's going to be a four-part series about mine and Sam's road trip out west. So you'll be able to get even more behind the scenes in front of the scenes still because it's curated. Who knows? So please check it out. It's called Strangers Abroad. Send me an email. You can also rate and review it. And I would love that. So, yeah. I, too, have another podcast. It is called Family Ghosts. On our most recent episode, we feature a New Yorker writer who I admire very much named Jai Young Fan reading an audio version of a memoir piece that she wrote about her and her mother coming to America from China and her experience of unwittingly becoming a piece of propaganda back in China when her mom gets sick with Lou Gehrig disease. So please check that out. And check out all the episodes of Family Ghosts wherever you procure your audio entertainments. And we will talk to you next time on Fisher Family Ghosts. Until then, stay six feet above.